Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, I want to do some Friday questions on my podcast. Now, if you're familiar with my blog, you know that one of my features is Friday Questions. I've done this really for like 15 years, and so far, I've answered probably close to 3,000 questions about show business and life in general. And a few times here on the podcast, I have made the offer, if you want to email me some questions, then I'll answer some right here. And I'm starting to now get some people sending in questions. If you have a question, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. So anyway, I figured, well, you know what? I've piled up enough of them, and it's a chance to just kind of talk to you about different things. So this week, it is Friday questions for whatever day this happens to be. So let's start out with One from Dave from Wisconsin. I should have a co-host, you know. I should have some kind of Johnny Gilbert who is reading these questions for me. But uh, it's just me. Okay, Dave from Wisconsin asked, I recently enjoyed an episode you directed of Everybody Loves Raymond called The Big Sneeze. Thank you, Dave. Now, in the bedroom scene, there was a moment that the boom mic appeared, and I was curious, at what point does the director say we have to do that over, or can you squeeze the screen, or is the scene take just that good where you don't care, or did it just get missed, and who is ultimately responsible? Well... To go backward, it's the showrunner who is ultimately responsible. But uh, I have to say, in that case, I, I never knew there was a shot where the boom mic appeared. And most of the time that that happens, it is because you know, people don't recognize it until too late. But you bring up a very interesting point, and that is, well, what if it's in the shot... But the performance is really great. And you have another performance. Let's say you have another take. Do you opt for the lesser performance 
but it's technically better and you don't see a boom mic in the shot. And here's my feeling about that. And again, this is just my feeling, but I think you go for the performance and unless it's really obvious, unless the the boom mic is covering somebody's forehead, if it's something that goes by very quickly that most of the audience won't really pick up on, then I say go for the performance. Now, it's very rare that you see a, a boom mic, although I have to say once uh, my partner David Isaacs and I did a pilot and <laughs> the camera guy who had the master shot backed so far away that not only could you see the boom mic, but you could see a guy sitting in the catwalk above the boom mic. Well, that is not a shot that we were able to use. But, you know, oftentimes continuity can be a problem. And by that, I mean you shoot three takes of a scene and in one take the drink is in the actor's right hand and in the next take the drink is in the actor's left hand or in one case the uh, tie is on crooked uh, and you go well uh, hmm what do you do again my feeling is always opt for the best performance. Now, I notice this more than most people because I guess I look for it, although I didn't see the boom shot in that uh, particular episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. And by the way, sometimes when that happens, the cameraman will pick it up and the cameraman will say, I've got a boom shadow in my shot. Uh, and, you know, when that happens, you go, okay, we'll do another take. But... Uh, in most cases with continuity, it's hard to really tell. And one thing that I notice all the time is if somebody has a drink, well, in one take, if he, let's say, has a, a glass of beer, okay, and a Pilsner glass, in one take, the foam is at the top, and in the next take, the foam is in the middle, and you just keep switching back and forth, back and forth. And again, if the performances are better, most of the time the audience won't know it. We did a, an episode of Almost Perfect, and it's available on YouTube called It's a Wrap. And you can go to YouTube and check out part three because this is a tart fight. We had like 300 tarts. And we shot it on a Monday night after camera blocking. Then the crews came in and completely cleaned everything up. And then Tuesday night in front of the audience, we shot it again. And like we usually do, we will just cut back and forth from performance to performance. He did it better in the first take. She did it better in the second take, etc. But we got down to the end of the pie fight. And there's about two pages of dialogue. And in one of the, the scenes, as Nancy Travis is talking with Matt Lesher, in one of the scenes, Matt Lesher has whipped cream all over his face. It's just plastered all over his face. And then in the other take, it's kind of half on his face. 
So you figure, well, that's really going to be noticeable. But we tried and we went, well, boy, it's just better if we assemble it one take, one take, and who cares uh, how much frosting is on his face. And no one had ever brought it up to me. And again, you can go to YouTube and check it out for yourself. Maybe you've already seen the episode, but you will notice that there is a lot of continuity errors in that particular sequence, but we went for the performance. So that's what happens there. There is a script supervisor who is on the stage, and part of her job is to look out for continuity. Just that, you know, you rose your right hand, uh, you lifted the beer up to your chin, not up to your ear, that sort of thing. And a lot of times, because these people are really good and they're really conscientious and they catch most of the things. But every so often, something will slip away. And of course, there are great examples of movies where you see this. There's a scene in Spartacus where you see part of the Ventura Freeway for a second. There's uh, scenes in uh, other, you know, sand and sword movies where you can see telephone poles. So it happens from time to time. If you look at the MASH episode, it's actually the first episode of MASH that David and I wrote called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. If you look at the tag, you will notice Hawkeye goes into the nurse's tent and he's trying to get them to sleep with him. You know, big surprise there. But one of the nurses is reading a paperback. And if you look real closely, you can see that the paperback she's reading is Jaws, (laughs) which was written like 20 years after the... uh, (laughs) the crisis in Korea. So those are some continuity issues. Uh, Dave also asks, in another episode involving the twins, again, we're talking about Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, the twins with Marie's cookie jar, I was impressed at how well the twins seem to follow directions. What are some of the challenges with working with these young kids? Well, yeah, they're not really all that skilled I feel sorry for these kids. My heart goes out to these kids because I'm sure most of them really don't want to do this. You know, uh, their friends go off at the end of the school day and have fun and play. And these kids are being schlepped by their mothers to Warner Brothers or Paramount to audition for some part. But if they do it, long enough, like those kids, then you develop a a certain skill and you're able to do it. And the other thing as a director, you just don't ask that much of them. (laughs) It's as simple as that. And one of the reasons is because we don't have them all day. They have schooling. So what happens is you work with an extra and then when it's ready for a run-through, then you call for the actual child actor 
and you tell him, okay, you're going to stand here, and then you're going to come over here, and you're going to say your line here, and you're going to say your line there. And just as the writers don't try to tax them with a lot of difficult dialogue, as a director, I do my best to make it as simple as possible. But it's, it's a shame to see some of these kids. I directed a show that starred a kid who I think was eight or nine, and this was a world-weary 50-year-old in the body of a child. It was just so weird to see. So, um, yeah, your kid might be cute, and you might think, gee, it would really be fun to have him in commercials or shows, but I don't think you're doing the kid a favor. And I think if you talk to most child actors, former child actors, they'll say, you know, I, I gave up my childhood. It wasn't really that much fun. It's also kind of weird for them because when they're on the set, people cater to them all the time. All you have to do is say, I want a Diet Coke. And the assistant director is calling six PAs to run over to craft services and get the little darling a Coke. And then when they get out into the real world, people aren't treating them that way. And the other thing, and this is the last thing I'll say about uh, child actors, they have to deal a lot with adults. And they find after a while, that they're more comfortable talking to adults than they are talking to their peers. And I think that's kind of a sad thing. Okay, Dave from Wisconsin. We'll get back to more of your questions in a moment, but first a life question for you, and it's one uh, you have been avoiding. How do you pay off your credit card? Yeah, like everybody else, this year has thrown you for a loop, and you know how the interest just piles on until eventually you're buried. What are you going to do? Well, I have the solution. It's called Upstart. So what is Upstart? Well, it is the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off all of your debt all online. Whether you're paying off your credit cards, you're consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Within a five-minute online check, you can see whether or not you qualify. And here's the good news. They look at more than just your credit score. Now, you can get approved the very same day, and you can receive your funds as fast as one business day. So if debt has taken over your life, it's time for a fresh start. It is time for Upstart. You can find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash Hollywood. Once again, that's upstart.com slash Hollywood. Don't forget to use our URL and let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash Hollywood and get that fresh start and uh, get out of debt. Hollywood and the fine. Next up is Paul D. from St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for writing in, Paul. He says, what are your thoughts when a series deliberately violates its own continuity for the sake of a particular script? 
For instance, imagine that in a pilot episode, it's established that the main character is 36 years old, but two years later, the third season opens with that same character turning 40. Some viewers will notice and won't like it. Well, and then he says, uh, lastly, um, have you seen shows that are more careful about this kind of thing than others? Well, to answer the last part of this question first, I think uh, the Marvel Universe pays way more attention. They're very vigilant about uh, their characters and the uh, Marvel comic universe world than most other writers are. And the truth is that oftentimes when you're writing a show in the third or fourth, fifth year, you either forget what you had done before or you have new writers that cycle in and the new writer isn't aware of what went on in season one. Shows used to have Bibles where they would have like a full page description of each episode. But even then, you know, if Potter mentions he has a daughter in one episode and then two years later he mentions he has a son, um, it just goes unnoticed. And I've talked about this before where David and I, we were in the seventh season of MASH and we had a show, an episode that was taken out of the research that we got where the doctors removed a perfectly healthy appendix from a company commander to keep him out of action because he was very gung-ho and he would send his men into battle and there would be a lot of casualties. We figured, okay, this is a really good story. So we write the episode. We, at the time, were being consulted by Gene Reynolds, who was one of the showrunners in the first five years. And Gene read our script and didn't recognize it as being the same story from an earlier year that, you know, the Gelbart years where they did essentially the exact same story. Okay. So we take it down to the stage. Now you figure one of the actors or one of the crew people, somebody was going to say, wait, um, I'm getting some deja vu here. We did that particular episode. Nope. Never happened. (laughs) And we didn't find out about it until a few weeks later when at the time MASH was not in syndication, but CBS was running old episodes Friday night at 1130. And, my partner David calls me and he goes, oh, my God, I just saw our episode. What are you talking about? And he said, you know the preventative medicine episode? Yeah, they did that year one. Well, we were mortified. But again, how could an entire crew, nobody remembered that we had done that one episode? So if that's the case... Uh, you got to figure, well, if Hawkeye has a sister in season two and then she becomes his brother in season five, no one is really going to 
take that much notice. Except I can recall an instance where we did kind of box ourselves in, and that was on Frazier. Because at some point uh, during the run of Cheers, I think we had said that his father had died and that his father was an academic, mother was alive. I don't remember exactly what. But now we get to Frazier, and, of course, they're putting together a show not based on the continuity. They don't feel that they are handcuffed to that. So they create the Father Martin, played so well by the late John Mahoney, and went forward. But we did an episode in the third season, I believe, and David and I wrote this, where Sam Malone came back. And so we figured, okay, (laughs) time to pay the piper. We have to somehow explain all of this away, which we did in the episode. But yeah, it was the kind of thing where uh, it's kind of dicey, but what can you do? Now, Going back to MASH for one second, you talk about continuity. There was an episode, season three, called The General Flipped at Dawn, and the actor playing this wacko general was Harry Morgan. And a few years later, after McLean died, well, well, the character died, and then McLean died later, um... I, I think the General Flipped at Dawn was season two. I'm sorry, not season three. The point is, when they were looking for a replacement, they thought, well, what about Harry? And so Harry Morgan becomes Colonel Potter. And if you are a fan of MASH, uh, at some point or another, you will have seen the General Flipped at Dawn and you're going, wait, whoa, that, that's Colonel Potter. But no one is really going to care. And we'll get back to more of your questions in a moment, but first a word from Honey. Now, you have no excuse for not trying this product because it is free. And now I have your attention. So what is Honey? Well, it is a free browser extension that scours the Internet for promo codes and applies the best ones it finds to your cart. Okay, how does it work? Well... Okay, you're shopping in one of your favorite online sites, and uh, when you get to the checkout, the Honey button drops down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Then you wait a couple of seconds as it does its thing, and it finds these coupons, and all of a sudden you see that your price drops. So not only is Honey free, but it's free money. All right? Now... If you don't already have honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free, and it installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So get honey free at joinhoney.com slash Levine. That's joinhoney.com slash Levine. And I'm here to tell you, I saved $17 on a pair of shoes. It's free. Join honey.com slash Levine. Next question from someone who calls himself Blinky. 
His question is, how did Nick Colasanto's experience as a TV director impact his relationships with actors and directing at Cheers? Did he ever direct an episode? No, he never directed an episode of Cheers. Mostly, he directed hours. He did some Columbos. He did a number of Hawaii Five O's and other hour-long shows. We didn't know this until like midway through the first season. We had no idea. We knew that he had also been an acting teacher and a very highly regarded acting teacher in New York. And, you know, his acting resume is very impressive, including a pretty sizable part in Raging Bull. But we had no idea that he was a director. He got along great with his cast, and I will say this for him. Um, he got along great with us writers because he did something that we loved. It's very smart on his part, and I've mentioned this before. But if he had a problem with something in the script, and all actors do from time to time, and that's fine. Most of the time, that's fine. If he came up to us with a problem, he would always preface his issue by saying, look, I'm happy to do it exactly as written, but I'm concerned about this, this, or this, whatever. The mere fact that he said he would do it as written, we always changed it. (laughs) We always changed it. Uh, But we weren't pissed about it. You know, some of the other actors, and not on Cheers, this would be on some other shows that I've dealt with, basically as a director, so it's not my problem to do the rewrite. But, uh, yeah, the actor could be very snippy about it, and uh, he could be very confrontational. That was never the case with Nick Colasanto. Houston Mitchell has a question. He said... How long do you give a new show before you decide it's just not for you? I watched 15 minutes of Call Me Cat, didn't laugh once, and haven't gone back to it. Later, I started thinking that maybe I should have been more patient. Your thoughts? Well, I try, and I put quotation marks around try, to watch at least the pilot or at least one full episode. Although there are times when, I'll be honest with you, 10 minutes and I go, okay, not for me. If the show is really crass, like Two Broke Girls, and is just filled with this horrible, dirty jokes, scatological humor, just bad sex humor, I go, okay, you know, not, not for me. Uh, But otherwise, I'll try to give a show at least a full airing. And in a lot of cases, of course, I know some of the creative people involved. So, you know, I want to give them their due. And that makes it even harder at times because you're watching a show and you really want to like it because you know the creator, you know some people on staff, and you like them very much, and you hope that the show is a success and that they have a nice long run, but it's terrible. It's just terrible. And um, 
It's it's tough, especially if you're going to bump into him. And you bump into every rider uh, during a strike. And since we seem to have strikes every three years, uh, it gives us a chance to, to catch up with all of the riders. This year it's easier, of course, because of the pandemic and we don't see anybody. But normally... There'll be a Writers Guild Film Society. There'll be some sort of seminar. There'll be some kind of event at the Museum of Broadcasting. Whatever, you bump into these people. But uh, in this case, no, you you can hide out. But it it is tough when um, somebody you really like uh, does a show and it's, it's terrible. And the other thing you don't know is... How much of that is a result of network interference? Was the writer's original idea much better? Did he have a strong vision? But then it just got homogenized and changed and changed and changed and notes from the studio and notes from the network and notes from the actor and notes from the actor's manager and more notes from the studio and more notes from the network. And by the time it's finally filmed, it comes out looking like every other bland sitcom because everything is really safe. Well, we don't like her when she does this. Can we bring him back again? Because he's really kind of funny. Um, You know, the casting. There are people that the networks love and will force you to take. And there are people that the networks do not like for whatever reason. And if you come to them and try to get that actor cast in your show, they'll say no, and and you're stuck. So sometimes it's not your fault, but it is very tough uh, for me watching these shows, wanting them to be really good and finding them to be awful. Mike Schlesinger has a question. I had mentioned in a blog post a while ago that we had Sheldon Leonard, the great Sheldon Leonard, who was, his company uh, was responsible for, among others, the Dick Van Dyke Show and the Andy Griffith Show. And he himself had been an actor playing heavies for many years. He was, he's quite a, an interesting uh, guy. Uh, fun fact, you know, on uh, Big Bang Theory, Two characters are Sheldon and Leonard. Mm -hmm. That's where the names came from. Uh, But I joked because somebody said, how is he to work with? And I said, great. He never threatened me, (laughs) which, as I said, was, was a joke. And so Mike says, I know you were joking about uh, Leonard threatening you, but just out of curiosity, were there any actors who did? And the answer is, No, no actor has ever physically attacked me. Um, I've had as a director, I I, I had an actress yell at me, but no, no one has ever done anything like that. There have been cases, however, where uh, actors have gone after writers. And um, one I can remember in particular 
good friend of mine, a very good writer and also a very nice guy, Tom Straw. And he was the showrunner of the Brett Butler sitcom. The name escapes me or maybe I'm just repressing it. But at one point during a a filming night, she threw a full can of Coca-Cola at Tom's head. Now, it missed him and slammed up against the wall, but just think a full can of Coca-Cola coming at you at full speed. That could do some serious damage. And Tom did not stay with the show much longer as a result of that. There was a time when George Clooney was on a sitcom. That's right, George Clooney was on a sitcom. I forget the name of that one, too, but uh, Ed Period Weinberger was one of the producers, and he could be very tough on everybody. And in that particular case, I remember there was one day where uh, Clooney just threatened to beat the crap out of him. So I guess that counts. All right, finally, Kendall Rivers has a Friday question for whatever day this is. He says, I'm a big fan of the old cop private detective shows like Hill Street Blues, Moonlighting, The Rockford Files, etc. I know you're mostly into the sitcom world, but do you have any favorites in the cop private detective genre that uh, you grew up on or still watch now? I love that genre, and... I watch a lot of those shows. So let me just kind of run down the list. Columbo, certainly. Uh, Any show that was created by the team of Levinson and Link, they were so smart and their shows were so clever. I used to love Columbo, a show that I absolutely adored that ended a few years ago but is available, and if you haven't seen it, uh, I definitely recommend it. And that is Justified, starring Timothy Oliphant. And in that one, he plays a U.S. Marshal originally from Kentucky who is sent back to the office in Kentucky, uh, pretty much against his uh, wishes. And he has to deal with Walton Goggins and all of these hillbilly, right-wing, pro-Trump, assholes and it's a fascinating show the writing is so good it's from an elmore leonard novel but it's a great character and uh, a terrific show justified there were about five or six seasons and they had the most delicious villains including and i believe it is season two and that is one you got to zero in on it's the one with margot martindale And she usually plays, you know, this sweet lady, sweet aunt. No, she is a, she, it's amazing. Graham Yost, who uh, created the show. I mean, the foresight, go against type and cast Margot Martindale uh, as a villain. But she was absolutely chilling. I guess Breaking Bad counts in this genre. You know, there was... uh, Hank, you know, from the DEA, who is always going after Walter White. Um, 
Breaking Bad is probably my single favorite drama of all time. The Shield is another great one. The Shield with Michael Chiklis. It was created by Sean Ryan. It is a great show. I think it was like the first um, show directly made for FX, but it's it's really a gritty cop show. And, you know, you think that NYPD Blue is really edgy. No, man, it's that's Hallmark Channel compared to The Shield. Great character. I have talked about this in my blog, an old show from 1959 called Peter Gunn. Great theme by Henry Mancini. Starred Craig Stevens, and it was created by Blake Edwards, who later went on to do The Pink Panther and Shot in the Dark and Victor Victoria. But uh, it's a very cool show. It's a half-hour show, and it's in black and white, and the cinematography is just great. It's very atmospheric. There's a lot of the era jazz music and the beatnik scene it all takes place in new york a lot of stuff at night it's really a fun show and it's available i think on prime and also on monday mornings i believe because i just set a dvr i don't know exactly what time these things are on but i think like at two or three o'clock in the morning on uh monday morning um antenna no not antenna tv me tv plays peter gunn uh check that out Kojak, used to love Kojak with Telly Savalas and the Tootsie Roll Pop, although I recently seen some episodes and it's like, eh, it's not as good as I thought it would be. Mission Impossible was fun. The TV show, Mission Impossible. Uh, the Fugitive, again, I guess it counts because, you know, uh, Lieutenant Gerard was always trying to capture the fugitive, Richard Kimball, uh, that was a wonderful show. I binged watched the whole thing. I was able to buy the full DVD package for something like $25 and binged watched the whole thing. Uh, NYPD Blue, I liked the first couple of seasons. And after that, for whatever reason, I lost interest. Mannix, starring Mike Connors, was pretty cool. For Sheer Camp, there's Dragnet. And there are two versions of Dragon, actually three, because it originated on the radio. But then in the early days of television in the 50s, it was done with uh, Jack Webb, who always played uh, Sergeant Friday. And Ben Alexander was his sidekick back then. Those were the old black and white shows. And then it came back in like 1966, 1967, and Harry Morgan played the sidekick. And it's so tacky. It's just so bad and so cheesily done. Harry said, you'll notice that we are always wearing the same suits. We never change out of those suits. And I said, how come? And he said, well, because uh, Jack Webb, and it was his company, uh, when we would do exterior shots of getting in and out of the police car, going in and out of the uh, police station or city hall or a couple of these other places, uh, 
the continuity would work. We circle back to continuity. We never had to worry that, well, wait a minute. Uh, he's wearing a brown suit when he left the city hall. No, this way, it was never any problem. A show called Burke's Law, which starred Gene Barry, which was kind of fun, and it was less a, um, an action show and more a show where he would go around and question various suspects. And the suspects were all stars. It was kind of like the Love Boat version of a cop show. But he was very charming. He was also the uh, star of Bat Masterson. It was a show called Honey West that didn't last very long, but it starred Anne Francis, and she was pretty hot. That's why I watched that. Now, show called The Equalizer, and I must stress, this is the television version, the original television version. And I say that because there was a movie and I think a sequel of The Equalizer starring Denzel Washington, and there's a new show on CBS called The Equalizer with, uh, I think, Queen Latifah. But uh, she might be great. But the original was fantastic because it starred a a British actor, a very fine British actor named Edward Woodward. But he was like in his 50s or 60s and he had had a heart attack. So he couldn't really do anything. You know, it couldn't be any chase scenes or anything. And so there were scenes where he would, like, stare people down and they would turn into jello. I don't know how that works. Or he would just flick his gun and they would drop their weapons. They were intimidated by this 60-year-old British guy who had had a heart attack. And so the series figured, well, we got to have some action, right? We got to have some chase scenes. We got to have somebody climbing over fences. And so they hired an assistant, uh, the actor Keith Zarabica, and that was his job, was to run his ass off and get the shit beaten out of him while Edward Woodward would just sweep in at the last minute and flick his gun and solve the problem. Uh, A show called Ironsides, which starred Raymond Burr, loved him from... Uh, Perry Mason, certainly. There was a a show called Crime Story. It starred Dennis Farina. And that was set in the early 60s. And, of course, I love the early 60s. Hawaii Five-0, the original. Definitely not the reboot. And then along those lines, uh, there were some kind of fun, cheesy Warner Brothers produced shows for ABC in the late 50s, like Surfside 6, 77, Sunset Strip, Hawaiian Eye. Th- those were all really kind of fun. A show called The Closer that was on a few years ago with Kira Sedgwick I really liked. There was a really more of a mini-series that came out of Denmark called The Bridge. And there was an English version, but it's not nearly as good. The Danish version is really terrific. You've got to suffer through subtitles, but it is worth it. 
Naked City, an old show from the 50s I loved. Fargo, <laughs> with an asterisk. Seasons two and four. Seasons two and four were terrific. Uh, the other seasons, eh, not so much. Then there was a, a British show, and there was a U.S. adaptation, but the British show is really cool, called Life on Mars. And it was uh, a cop show that also involved time traveling. So uh, those would be all of my drama favorites in that genre. I mean, I also like other dramas that might just be legal shows, like The Good Wife. I love The Good Wife. So there you go. Those are some Friday questions. And, of course, the nice thing about uh, doing it on a podcast is I can basically um, expand my answers, which I did. So that'll do it for this week. Um, if you have any questions, again, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce and Jason Miller. Please follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Please subscribe if you have not already, and I could always use a five-star review on iTunes. Hope to see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood.